So welcome to episode 10 of Mosif's APIs over IPAs podcast network. I'm Derek Gilling, your host today, and the CEO of Mosif, the API analytics platform. Joining me is Adam Duvander. After being a technical journalist for Wired and editor of Programmable Web, he brought a very interesting perspective to the provider side. Uh, he ran developer communications and marketing at SendGrid and also at Zapier. Uh, funny enough, Mosif itself is a Zapier customer, so love using that product. And he also helps out with a lot of different companies and startups working on developer marketing and all things developer platforms. Happy to have you here today, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool, so just getting into things, we'd love to hear a little bit about your story, you know, starting off with uh, writing for Programmable Web to you know, how you got into developer-first businesses. Yeah, well, so firstly, I'm a developer. So I have computer science degree, worked professionally as a dev. So I had that background, but really all along have been interested in teaching and sort of that aha moment that someone gets to when like something really clicks for them. And, uh, and so I was really doing that all along. I mean, the, the writing for, for Wired started as tech tutorials for WebMonkey when, you know, I was, I was a dev and thought, Hey, more devs should know about this cool new technology or, uh, or tool that I'm using. And so, uh, so that was how that began. And then at some point I realized that was the, the bit I wanted to do. And I wrote some more for Wired and WebMonkey. And then actually my last piece was uh, mashups are dead, the web is alive. <laughs> sort of taking the, uh, you know, this would have been in the, uh, the late uh, 2000s decade uh, and really where, where everything was a mashup. And I was saying, you know, the future is that all of these APIs, this is just gonna be what the web is. And of course, I mean, mobile was pretty nascent, but uh, what the mobile became as well. So uh, I'm pretty sure that Programmable Web found me from that, uh, from that uh, post. And it was sort of a perfect timing. I was cocooning, writing my first book on mapping APIs. And, um, and so that was how, how I started writing for Programmable Web and then eventually joined full-time as the, as the first editor and built a team that found new APIs and reported on APIs and followed all those trends. And really that's part of the story for me of developer marketing too, is that I would receive all these PR pitches from companies with new APIs and they were so excited about their API, but, but weren't really telling the story of why, what they had mattered. And so I, uh, when I left Programmable Web, I realized there was this opportunity to help tell those stories. And so I call myself an accidental marketer because really, really I went back to that sort of uh, teaching and storytelling uh, part that I was doing before, you know, just for fun as a, as a dev, because I realized that that's actually the best way for companies to engage a technical audience. And so that's how how I sort of made that, uh, that transition or those couple of transitions from dev to journalist to, to technical marketer. I oh, definitely love hearing that story. And especially it's, it's super hard to engage with a technical audience. Um, what makes it so hard? Why, why is it so much harder than just traditional marketing? Yeah, I, you know, you could say like that, that devs have, have been burnt by sort of tricky sales tactics before. I think that's probably true. They have had their time wasted 
you know, you could say that too, but I think really the, the biggest thing it comes down to is that it's a developer doing their job. And part of their job is to be skeptical and think about <laughs> all of the edge cases that you might have. And, uh, and so a lot of sort of traditional marketing they see as, as sort of gotchas that are, uh, that are gonna keep them from reaching their goal which is to build some great software and uh, and you know not get kind of have their time wasted, get pulled in other directions. And so uh, I think that a lot of times um, marketing that is not oriented toward developers can kind of feel like it it raises that skepticism and they kind of feel like, oh, this is the stuff that's that has wasted my time before that has <laughs> pulled me other directions and um, yeah. And so they aren't drawn to it and that, you know, contrast that with something that is going to help them do their job better and really comes from that place where they can tell that the one sending that message either has a similar background or understands where they, where they are. And that makes all the difference in kind of building that trust. Well, that's a really good point, thinking about trust and turning that, you know, developer that's a skeptic into someone that's more of an evangelist. Uh, is there anything that a, a company can be doing to build that trust, whether it's around the product or, or marketing and messaging? So I think, I mean, companies who are building tools for developers often are started by developers for sure have an understanding of those problems, those real like developer problems that they are solving. So I think the more that you can share that you understand that, that alone will build trust because you're able to say, look, we were there, we we get it. That's why, that's why this exists. I mean, companies are started on sort of those opinions, those beliefs that something is harder than it should be or the way that other companies are doing this is not the way that that they think it should be done. And so the more you can kind of share those, those points of view, you can get developers on board. And certainly, so part of it is sharing that you understand those problems, but then also being able to show that you know how to solve those problems too is, is another key piece. That's why I, I keep coming back to education because uh, uh, a developer can't know everything about everything as much as they might try. And so if you're able to show them, we know our stuff and here's what we've seen to be successful, um, you'll gain a lot of trust that way and, uh, and potentially customers. Now that's a really good point to think about educating the market. And also, you know, it's better to show than just tell, right? Developers want to see how something yeah. works and, and what makes them uh, better at their job. Uh, with that said, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, companies out there, Zapier included, that have, you know, two different audiences, developer audience, yeah. and also you got the business folks that are coming in and just mm -hmm. trying to figure out what is an API or, or how do you even call it an API? Um, can you walk me through some of the challenges there and, and how do you actually speak to both audiences at the same time? Yeah, and and at Zapier, there might have even been more audiences than that if you <laughs> consider that there's sort of the user side of Zapier. So... Uh, the actually building these automations for your own 
tools, that sort of the ones who pay for Zapier, there's that audience, which is, I mean, it definitely has devs. I mean, I, I uh, still have a, a paid Zapier account that I use quite a bit and I could, I could code up some of the stuff that, that I do instead in Zaps, right? But, uh, but for the most part, that audience is not technical and doesn't know how to make those connections between their tools might not even know that APIs are the stuff that's making it happen. Then you have the platform side, which is where I did most of my work at Zapier. So the platform side is you have a, a SaaS tool that has an API. You want to connect it to Zapier, integrate it there to enable all of your users to be able to make those, those automations. And, you know, I, so my title had developer marketing in it at Zapier, but it took a bit of time there to realize that even that audience was less developer-y than, than we might have guessed. Um, there were definitely developers who were building some of those integrations with the, the Zapier platform, but a lot of those folks were from product or from uh, marketing in some cases, support, customer success, like anyone in the company who, who cared about being able to say yes to more of their customers, yes, we do that, yes, we integrate with that, was looking to come to Zapier for the platform side to be able to enable their customers that way. And so there, for sure, it was a lot less of the, the developer message. There were certainly... Uh, some API best practices that uh, that I tried to to share that spoke more to that technical audience and sometimes did kind of uh, uh, go between those you know the 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 business and and developer side but a lot of the messages were were really about wanting to get get your product in front in front of more of your users and expand your product's ability to do the things that the users want it to do. So uh, I, I gave a talk actually about, uh, it was, I have a post about it that is the invisible audience, your portal's invisible audience. And I really do believe that more APIs than realize have an audience that is not what you and I might call a developer, not someone who is gonna write code all day. And, um, and I think going through ways to be able to have them raise their hands, be able to discover that they're there. And the, the example I give in that post is how we launched at Zapier a CLI for the platform based on research from some of the top integrators who wanted a more developer-like experience. But we realized over several months and changes to the portal, to the uh, the developer platform, that uh, that they were a minority amongst those who were starting out, at least. That um, that really people wanted a visual builder, and um, and so we were able to determine that based on watching the things that they cared about um, and slowly making changes to be able to make that case that, oh, we've invested in this, this really developer heavy platform. And that's not, that's not going away, but we need 
another interface that speaks to the larger group that's here. And I think there are, as much as I love developer audiences, I think that there's room for that in any API, especially a developer first uh, sort of, you know, infrastructure type of API that maybe doesn't support a SaaS tool, which would be the, you know, that's the, the differentiator I make there is sort of developer enabled is often, often SaaS where, where it's, you need a developer to help you use the API as opposed to something like Twilio or Stripe where it takes sort of a piece of your stack and that becomes a more developer first, developer focused company. So, uh, but I think for all of those, there's definitely room for that less technical audience if you're able to, to, to look for that audience. Um, uh, but then at some level, you also need to have all those things that a developer looks for. So it's, it, does, it does put you down a road of kind of looking in two places. So if, uh, if you're early enough, you might be looking for the ones who, who are um, ready to more fully integrate. And it sounds like you did a lot of measurement to figure out, you know, how much are, are they getting activated with Zapier? You know, what are they doing with the platform? Did that, was there any type of feedback loop back into like onboarding or, or the type of uh, communication they get? And how did it differ depending on, you know, are they a developer or not a developer or audience they are bucketed in? Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, a lot of that was with the product team, which I did work pretty closely with, but they they drove that part, the the platform product team. Uh, and so that would absolutely be looking at kind of, do they create an app? And then, at, so an app being being the integration to, to the Zapier platform. And then how far through do they get for that? So in, in that case, there are triggers and actions. So you can look and see, have they created some triggers and actions to enable their their own users, and then have those been have those been used? You know, has a has a true call gone through against that? And that was all available in log data. And um, I mean, that's the Zapier. At least at that point, I'm sure they still collect quite a bit. Um, but uh, I, you know, it's it was all in a system that we could, as employees, really dig into and and put together the case for why, why uh, we're being more or less successful. And again, a lot of that was with the, the product team. Uh, and then of course you might imagine on the, on the user side, there's a lot of that as well about activation. Um, and I think even though that's the user side, there's definitely an API lesson to be, to be had for that because Zapier, when it works, you don't have to come back. <laughs> and an API is sort of the same thing, right? Like if someone's returning to your developer portal every day, there might actually be a problem uh, and they, they haven't reached the full integration. And it's, it's similar in that way for the user of, of Zapier. And so there it's looking for the proof in the, in the logs and Zapier even charges that way. So ha has someone had a successful run of this uh, integration, this automation that they set up 
and how many of those have they had and are they continuing to have those over time and that's the sort of the sort of stuff that you can do also as you're looking at is someone using my api uh is again looking for those those signs that it's gone beyond that hello world right they they have had an initial success and they have moved the code to to their machine or to their uh you know to their servers and are have calls that are coming regularly enough that you at least know that they're still testing things out that's a really good point especially since uh, you're not logging into a portal every day you know if i'm integrating stripe i hope I mean, not why yeah. should i right yeah <laughs> but but then you know that also brings up a different challenge which is how do you actually measure that and, and, and create KPIs, you know, when, when you don't want people to log into your portal? Does that mean, you know, the KPIs are different? And how do you leverage that, that API data that you were mentioning earlier as Zapier? Yeah, so I, I think being able to recognize what are the signs of someone who has had success and then making sure that you can measure that. And I, I do think, I mean, this is, great for uh for most of there's a lot there's a lot that's within api logs that can tell a lot of that story for sure um and so i think i think looking for uh recent calls and then calls that are certain at a certain threshold uh calls to particular uh particular endpoints with with hopefully with success so if you're seeing a lot of 401s, 403s, then someone's still stuck in authentication. And uh, certainly from, from my perspective as a content person, I immediately think like, what is that, that getting started guide? You know, do we, do we talk enough about what it takes to get authenticated or do we just sort of hand wave through that? Um, you know, that, so that would be the sign that I would that I would need to look there is if you're seeing that type of error. So I think you can see similar things. It's going to be specific to your API, but you know what it looks like for someone to have success connecting. Uh, even if even if you're brand new, you can you can at least figure out what that would look like, right? To to have API calls coming through and then making sure you're seeing that and looking at it kind of on a on a per user basis and it's going to be different for different APIs i was a developer relations at a at a database api and lots of people come in and sort of kick the tire once and and move on from something like that because a database you're not going to rip out your whole database and replace it you have to be in the right at the right spot in the right moment. And uh, we were an early startup, so we were casting that net probably a little wider than, uh, than one might when they're further along and kind of know the use cases that someone would use their API. But, um, but I, would, I would expect any database type of uh, API to, to have uh, much less or much more uh, churn on that, you know, fewer people making it through to success than than something that's much more pinpointed uh, of a solution. You know, I think, uh, I mean, I really do think a, a Twilio Stripe, some of the things they have going for them is they are, have very specific um, use cases.
No, definitely. Line of business, basically, it's, it's very yeah. pointed uh, uh, transactions that you're providing or, or yeah. business functionality. Um, you know, you, you spoke on, you know, creating more content around, you know, how does authentication work when you identify that maybe there's some struggles there. Um, was there other ways that, you know, maybe you were able to change your marketing strategy based off of, you know, looking at activations or looking at how people, you know, adopt and use the platform? I, yeah, I mean, one thing I didn't mention is actually talking to people. So I know we, we got right into sort of the, <laughs> the analytics, but that was another, another piece uh, was when people would, would sign up. This was uh, at Zapier, but I mean, also the case at, uh, at Orchestrate, which was the database of the service. It was, if someone's just getting started, how can we, how can we hop on a call or get an email exchange going back and forth to get uh, more qualitative data about where someone might be struggling. And, you know, a lot of that is uh, with, with the database for sure is sort of how can we get them to that hello world. But uh, at Zapier, it was more of understanding what those, what that audience was. And, um, and so that a lot of it was internal communication, which I mean, many of the people listening here, probably these APIs exist within a company, right? So there's a lot of internal conversation that has to happen and, and kind of helping other people see what you have learned. And so that was a big part of the, of the project to understand that Zapier platform user as well, and kind of plotting them on a developer background access, uh, along with kind of willingness to write code and, you know, and, and being able to, uh, to make that case that there were a lot more folks who didn't have that background and weren't ready to spin up uh, the CLI in their terminal. Definitely a good point on thinking about both qualitative and quantitative feedback. I know it's so easy to get, you know, very buried in the, the analytics piece without, you know, talk, talking with developers, right? They're humans after all. Um, but, you know, sometimes they're not responsive to, you know, email or, or, you know, they want to be left alone. Were there any best practices that you found that you can share, you know, on, you know, best ways to reach out to developers and, and have that dialogue go? Yeah, I, I think giving, being open to multiple ways of communication. So we've mentioned a couple already here, which is reply to the email. You know, I'm not like on that list of, of things that developers get skeptical about is the you know, I just want to have a few minutes of your time on a, uh, on a video call, right? Like uh, that some, some are ready to make that leap, but not, not everyone, right? So being willing to have email as, as another one, then I think something that, that everyone can do is within documentation, placing opportunities for feedback there. Um, Algolia, I know, has sort of like an exclamation point kind of on, on several places in every page where when you click it, you have an opportunity to like fill in like a this isn't working sort of thing. At, the, at a minimum, I mean, the, the, at Zapier, we had kind of a box at the bottom of every page. Um, many now have the kind of edit this, you know, you can, you can go and, and fork it in GitHub and, and put the the edit you think should go here. All of those different levels of, of a way to be able to get 
some kind of feedback uh, in, I think is great. The important piece there though, is you have to, you have to actually look at it and, and do something about it, right? So uh, that was at Zapier, we won't be surprised that we had had a zap that would pipe that into a, a specific Slack channel that all of the platform team was in. Um, yeah, but having some way to be able to, to then reply if there is some sort of, if that's attached to a particular user, but at least be able to take action, especially when, when someone notices a problem, because that's, that's the, we've all been there in the, in the documentation that is wrong. And if it just is, stays inaccurate, it's just developer after developer who, uh, who you're upsetting. I mean, that's the, that's the quick path to, to, um, you know, keeping those developers away is to, to continue to have inaccuracies in your, in your docs. I, I laugh pretty hard here because I know uh, uh, keeping those docs up today is always a challenge. Uh, in fact, for here at Mosef, uh, we, we leverage it, you know, edit at GitHub button and, and our docs are all open source. Yeah. We use Jekyll for this. Uh, it's an open source static generator. Uh, great product. Um, but, you know, who actually owns docs in this case? Does that mean it's, it's a product team? Is it marketing? Is there any good process to keep those up to date? Because, you know, we're always seeing that as a challenge with the developer platforms. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, as, as, for, as for who owns it, I mean, I often find myself talking to marketing teams and reminding them that they do need to care about the documentation. Uh, and many marketing teams do, but very few, I would say, own it. Um, I think probably most often it is owned in product, but we also know that not every product team is gonna see that as the core piece of the product. Um, larger teams will have documentation uh, teams dedicated to that or individuals, but that of course is not not always the case either. So um, it's, yeah, I mean, I think, so I think if you are listening to this, then then you're probably a good person to champion it within your own company that at least having, uh, recognizing that docs spreads between multiple company, multiple teams that might care about it, um, kind of at the very minimum, putting together like a, an ad hoc uh, group that cares about it. And we definitely did that and had multiple calls at, uh, at Zapier over that time frame of kind of people from support and product and engineering and marketing who, um, who had a reason to, to want more people to have success with the, with the docs. Um, documentation also is just one piece of that overall developer experience. And, um, and certainly the product side of, of kind of the onboarding is a piece of that. I, I see a lot of the developer content as, as related to, to developer experience as well. Um, because it's, it, even if it's the first time that they've arrived, that someone, a developer has arrived at a piece of content, they, they found you because you're writing about, uh, the developer problem that they're experiencing. That initial experience is an experience. And that is part of the, the whole journey that someone, uh, hopefully will go on with, with your API. 
And, uh, and it certainly starts before that too. It starts with developers chatting in, uh, you know, in uh, Discord rooms about which APIs are easier frustrating them at that, at that moment, right? Like that sort of word of mouth is happening too. And, and really that's, that's if you go really broad with what is developer experience, uh, and I, I tend to go fairly broad in, in that definition of, you know, all interactions someone has with your, your company, with your product, it even includes that. So, um, so looking for ways to, to show up positively uh, is a benefit to the developer experience when they actually do get to the point of using your API as well. I'm glad you just defined that. I was just about to ask what is developer <laughs> experience and, and how you define it. Um, you know, with that said, you know, it's such an abstract thing still. I mean, is, is there a developer experience team? Is that more of a mindset? You know, how do you actually make sure you have a good de developer experience and is there a way to measure it or, or is it not yeah. really measurable? So uh, in terms of a, a team, I mean, I think that's, that depends on, uh, on how core the API is to the company. So, I mean, if the, if the API is the primary product of, of a company and more and more we're seeing a lot of these, I'm sure you're seeing that. Uh, in that case, developer experience should probably matter to the, to the whole company on, on some level. Uh, in which case, I'm not sure that a team makes sense. I've definitely seen developer experience teams. Uh, I think most often those teams are either a product team that is in charge of kind of onboarding dashboard experience or is a documentation team with a different name. Uh, I've, I've seen those two. I'm sure that, that some companies maybe lump even those two together, though I think I've seen it more often in, in separate groups. Uh, so yeah, I don't know whether there needs to be a, a team with that name or, or not, but definitely there needs to be a team or multiple teams who are, who are wanting to improve that developer experience, regardless of whether that uh, the name is, is on the group. And so certainly being able to measure something, we talked a little bit about some of the things you'd wanna see to be able to say, this is developer success. Uh, from a high level, I, I have 13 criteria I look for to be able to, to, to say whether someone is in a, in a place that, that would give a developer a, a good experience. Certainly there's more to it, uh, whether they're actually successful, but things to look for, like, do you have SDKs in popular languages? Uh, do you have a complete reference that, that is up to date? Um, and then a lot of the sort of getting started type of things are other, are other ones that I look for there. Uh, and so I do measure it, but it's really meant to be, to be high level. Um, I think the, the more granular measurement really gets down to the usage that we've already talked about, uh, because, uh, that's re that's really where the where it become where it answers whether it's a good developer experience or not is do the developers have success do they get do they get from finding you to not only that hello world but something that's actually useful and 
pushes them forward towards solving that problem. And, and then what's next after they're you know fully up and running? Sounds like they're not kicking the tires anymore. You know, any good practices when it comes to developer communication? Certainly if things are changing, I mean, that's, uh, you know, all of your docs could be up to date and wonderful to get a developer to success. But then if, uh, if your API is changing a bunch and breaking things for the developer, even if you're updating your docs every single time that that happens, every time, every time you make a change, it's always up to date, but what they built on before, if that's breaking, then that's certainly going to create a worse developer experience. So uh, that sort of product change is something that has to be happening continually, but that means that you need to have those open lines of communication. Um, and that's, that's tough when a skeptical dev might, uh, might um, sign up with a different email address that they don't check very often, right? Those, those sorts of things. Uh, but email can be just one of many ways to be able to, to get a hold of them. Certainly, if someone's logging into a dashboard, you have that as a, as a way to get a hold of them. We even uh, at Zapier, um, Ben Peter, who's uh, an API master, would, would always be the, the one sort of in charge of figuring out when they're were deprecations or problems across what is now 3,000 APIs. I sure hope Ben has some help now, not just not just Ben uh, <laughs> working on it, but uh, he wrote about some sort of deprecation best practices, even right down to putting some stuff in the header. I know there are some, uh, Eric Vilda has a, has a, a sunset header. Um, I, and yeah, being able to, to sort of go through the steps of, trying to communicate, then sort of putting things into the header and even so much as doing kind of a flick the lights on and off kind of test where, uh, where you give them a chance to, to catch it actually going down, potentially breaking something, but then put it back up so that it's not, not a, a complete uh, you know, firefight on, on their side. And so Ben, I think, wrote a couple of posts kind of about, about those best practices. But, but certainly, if you can start out communicating with a dev and set that expectation that you're going to send helpful things via email, you know, posting on your blog, then they'll be more likely to want to have that as an ongoing communication channel, uh, which would then mean that you'd be more likely to be able to reach them when you do have to make changes like that. Yeah, funny enough, I think we just came across a, a few of those blog posts. Uh, uh, we actually implement a lot of that functionality, most of itself, you know, uh, flipping the lights on and off or yeah. adding a deprecation header. Uh, but, you know, outside of deprecation itself, um, you know, how do you actually, um, you know, identify what to deprecate? And is there something that you write about or, or, or how do you actually decide on this stuff? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that I, so from the complete ideal developer standpoint, you would never deprecate anything. Right. So, uh, and, and I think if you look, I, I think Twilio might not have ever uh, wow. deprecated uh, 
and they they do versioning um kind of based on a date I, at least last i had looked also so if you integrated at a particular time you have this endpoint and you can you know always upgrade to the latest but they keep it going that's definitely very developer friendly you and i know that's not always possible there might be a, a system that's that you want to take down that is you know expensive in in some way right in maintenance in actual server cost um so there's a lot of reasons why you might want to make that choice but uh definitely erroring on on the side of not updating is uh is good but i think you know it's i think it's the typical sort of product decisions where it's how much is this used you know understanding who would be impacted um and even understanding who would be impacted on a on a um on like per call basis is actually possible if you really have access to your logs you know what endpoints people are calling you know what data they're receiving so if you're going to change the shape of of data you do have ways to be able to to get at that uh, if you have set things up <laughs> to be able to access that just gotta make sure uh, it's set up ahead of time right <laughs> that's, that's, that's right um and there yeah there's you know i think open api is uh, as a data format for um, for APIs is one way that we have now to to at least have some expectations around what is within an API and a way to talk about it and even programmatically test against. Um, there's a company called Optic that will will actually look against your live calls and do some of that stuff that that I mentioned of sort of, hey, the shape of this API call changed or the shape is going to change in your next version and here are the users that that impacts. Um, and then certainly, yeah, being able to, to have a platform like Mosif to be able to look at, at endpoints that people call and, and be able to get that sort of analytics on usage and, and success would be another thing to help. Definitely. Uh, my last topic is really around, you know, startups who are just starting to think about a developer platform, you know, any best practices that you're able to share for someone just starting out in a developer marketing space? Yeah, I, I think, well, so if you're just starting out for sure to have those conversations that we talked about, and I, I we can maybe assume that someone is having those with you know, talking to developers about what they actually want. Um, and then I think, kind of going and looking for the basics to get someone to hello world, because as much as, as it's important, what happens after that, uh, they won't ever get to that if they don't get to that, that hello world. So, you know, are there, is there a getting started guide that you can make sure really focuses on that? Some of the problems I see with getting started guides is often someone wants to share all of the context you would ever need to know about using your product. And that's the wrong place for it because sort of if you have to study up on concepts before you can even get started, that's that's uh, a non-starter for most developers. Most developers will skip that part and get to the like, where's the part where I actually make a call? Um, and so, so 
helping someone be able to get where they want to go. So streamline that that process in the getting started guide. You can always you can layer in a little bit of a little bit of concept as it's needed, and then you always can link out to the other spots where you cover that more in depth. Uh, so that's definitely a problem I see. Uh, after the the bigger problem of not having that sort of content at all to get started. Um, sometimes there'll be multiple getting started. So that's also confusing. So being able to have that single place to, to send them through. Uh, and then certainly looking for ways to make sure that your docs will stay up to date. I mentioned open API. So can you generate from your open API, at least your API reference, so that you know that that, that, that is up to date. Uh, requires that you also keep your open API up to date, open API <laughs> document up to date, but you know, there must be some way to be able to <laughs> be able to do that. So, um, so yeah, to, so that that way you're putting yourself forward with at least the basics of documentation that, that someone expects. And then from a startup perspective, you're gonna want as quickly as you can to understand how someone wants to use your product. Hopefully you have some ideas around that already. Put those out there in the form of use cases and sample apps, uh, you know, validate that those are the problems that someone wants to solve. And um, yeah, and I, I'm seeing this less, but you know, within the last week, I've had a conversation about this where it's, we're this platform that can do anything and we wouldn't want to, to you know, hold back developer creativity by telling them what we do. And I, I, I think that that's the telling them what you can do is the spark that starts that creativity. So, uh, so being able to give some of those use cases is what will make someone realize, oh, well, this is sort of like this other thing that they didn't have in mind, then they will be creative. But just providing something and saying, do something with this um, is not actually the, uh, doesn't, yeah, doesn't uh, inspire that creativity in the way that, uh, that people I think, think it does. Well, that's a really good lesson, which is, uh, it's really easy to, or, or it's really good to show than tell, right? Show the different use cases and provide that very concise and specific onboarding or, or, or getting started guide, but don't have 10 of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just have one, right? Yeah. So, cool. Well, thank you very uh, for having us here, Adam. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk about developer marketing yeah. and uh, developer experience. Yeah, thanks for having me.